Good morning, everyone. We come to week three of a series that we've been in for the last couple of weeks called Sticks and Stones. Perhaps you've been here uh, one or both of the last two weeks, but um, we're talking about words and how important our words are. Uh, the, the, the first week was about our hearts, and, and when the words come out of our mouth, what does that reveal about our hearts? And last week, we talked about this idea of life-giving words, that, 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 that we ought to be encouragers and fuel others with life, and how does that impact us, and how do we live that way? Today, we come to a different topic, and to get us sort of rolling in this topic, I'm going to ask you a question uh, to interact briefly with the person next to you. You can stay in your seats. But the question is this. It's a two-part question. And it has to do with how many words men and women use in an average day. So the first part of the question, you could guess it. How many words does the average man say in a day? Right? Guess that with your person next to you. And then part two, how many words does the average woman say in a day? Ready? Go. All right, all right. Call you back here. I heard one guy over here say, I say a lot. <laughs> that was his first response, okay? So, um, so there's some different studies out there that give some variation in terms of what their study actually, you know, told us. But what's your guess, those who did not look on your iPhone uh, or whatever phone you have uh, to find out, what's guess on, on the men's side of things? How many? 5,000? 4,000, 2,000, okay. The study I came across, again, just one of a few studies, but said men on average speak 2,000 words per day. Says nothing of the quality of their words, just saying. Uh, okay, women, how many do you think? 10,000, 20,000. <laughs> okay, okay. So this same study, right, contrasted men, 2,000. Women, it said 7,000, right? I'm just reporting the data here. Please don't get mad at me, okay? Just giving you one, one, one study. Um, and, and so there's obviously thousands of words, men or women, that are just flying around every day in all different kinds of ways, flying out, flying in, etc. And here's the thing about words. Chances are most of you, if not all of you, don't take all that much time in life to evaluate in honest fashion, your words. Over the last two weeks, we've, we've been in this series and, and we've been talking about this and really doing some evaluation, looking at what the scriptures say about how we use our words or how we ought not to use our words. And one of the things that we can extract and really for this whole series is this idea that God cares about your words, what words you use and what words you don't use. So week three, culminating part of the series, gets to this idea and revolves around what is it that wise people say, or more precisely said, what is it that wise people don't say? So there's many smart people probably in the room, if not all of you, but smart people use big words at times, sometimes even complex or complicated words. Wise people, they use less words 
Wise people use less words. And we live in this culture that we're sort of overloaded with words in all different ways. I mean, there's the, the words we speak, the two or five or seven or 20,000, whatever the numbers are. There's the words we speak. But, but there's also words that are, um, you know, embedded into our lives. We type or we read or, or we hear those words or we watch or we text or we post or a lot of us do email just about every day, lots of words being exchanged. There's TV, there's advertisements, there's movies, there's social media, Facebook, Twitter, Twitter, all kinds of other formats that words are just flying everywhere all the time, every day in your life. And there's such demand for our attention. And there's this thing inside of us too that we want to be heard and, and we, want, um, we want to have a voice to make a difference in the world. And that, that's inherently a good thing. And so we have all that stuff, and, and essentially we're swimming in a sea of words in our culture, perhaps more now in our day than ever. And there's no doubt that what we have in our culture and what we're, what we're embedded into is way more fueling of us using more words and far less fueling of us using less words. The current is going and moving us toward use more words, not less, yet there's this great challenge from the scriptures that tells us use less words. And I believe that every one of us can benefit from this very principle or from applying this truth, one might say. I mean, just think about one arena of, of life for a second. And I mean, you could go into marriages and friendships and at work, but, but think about the arena of arguments. Think about if we apply this principle in arguments how much um, regret we would have salvaged along the way. Perhaps even a relationship or more than one that we would have saved and wouldn't have dissolved or wouldn't have had the damage done to it that, that it did. And, and if we chose to use less words, chances are half of those arguments probably wouldn't even have ever happened. I mean, think about sibling rivalries that have, that have gone awry or, or kids who now don't even talk to their parents or, or Friendships that have just dissolved. I mean, there's all different ways that words have done damage to relationships. And I love what the New Testament book of James tells us about this. It, it speaks right to it, and God challenges us through this. James, the brother of Jesus, says this. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Summary, use less words. Control yourself with your words. And God's word, God's truth here is so practical, it's so wise, it's so good. And even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't follow Christ or trust God or believe in God or believe in the Bible, I mean, this principle can, can work for you. You can salvage regrets in your life. You can improve your relationships. And then if you are a follower of Jesus, most of us are. If you are a follower of Jesus, I mean, the words here are so clear and emphatic in what James says. Why? Well, at the heart of it is because God cares about relationships, your relationships in your life. And he knows that, that damage can be done, sometimes damage that cannot be retracted. And then we flip back into the Old Testament book of Proverbs and, and lots is said about words here. One chapter 10, verse 19 when there are many words, sin is unavoidable. But the one who controls his lips is wise. The one who controls his lips is wise. 
I mean, God is essentially challenging us to be quiet more. He wants us to listen more, yes, to other people, but, but even to him. And to really listen, of course, you have to talk less. You have to put a halt on constantly striving to be heard or be noticed, which can be a challenge for some of us at least. To speak much is essentially increasing the possibility of sin. In another translation, the same verse, here's what it says very directly. Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. (laughs) Thus saith the Lord. (laughs) We get it. Wise people use less words. It's what the scriptures are trying to tell us. And to be wise, the scriptures are clear that we need to keep our mouths closed more often. We need to hold it together, self-control. Because the more you talk, the more chances are you're going to say something foolish. You're going to do damage in a relationship. You're going to hurt somebody. You're going to sin. You're going to do something you regret. And so controlling your tongue, so to speak, we find in the scriptures is a really important part of spiritual maturity. Then if we jump over to Proverbs chapter 17, verse 27, it says this, The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint. And whoever has understanding is even-tempered. Again, self-control is key here. And those who, quote, use words with restraint reveal their greater understanding and their deep wisdom. One translation, same verse from the message, a paraphrased version, says, The one who knows much says little. An understanding person remains calm. And then verse 28 Even fools are thought wise. Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. Or one translation, again, paraphrase, says the word dunces. Even dunces who keep quiet are thought to be wise. At least nothing stupid is coming out of their mouth, I guess is implying. As long as they keep their mouth shut, they're smart. Perhaps you could say it like this. God is saying to us, write this down, shh, (laughs) right? I mean, he's just kind of like saying you need to quiet down a little bit. Turn down the motor, so to speak. And I know we see politicians, right? Not going to name any names, not going to go into it, but they use their words, we'll say unwisely at times. Is that fair? I think more than fair. And we see that, and it's so obvious, right? But it happens in marriages, and it happens in friendships, and it happens among siblings, and it happens at work, and it happens with roommates, and it happens everywhere, really, where we're too quick to speak, and we want to spout off, and we want want to, like, let them have it, tell them the truth. We might even spiritualize it a little bit. And in the throes of life, we forget about this important thing called self-control. We lose sight of it. We let, the, the, we let our temper get the best of us sometimes. We let the mundane annoyances in life fuel words come out of our mouth, right, that ought not come out of our mouths, often damaging people that we love the most. Sherry told me this story, my wife, about when she was younger, she was 13 years old, young teenage years. She has six siblings, so the six of them are driving in the car with dad. Dad's behind the wheel. They're driving down the road. They start arguing. This is what you do when you're kids. When your parents is behind the wheel, you argue, right? That's, that's the sort of the unspoken law because, you know, they can't do anything, right? So you argue. And so they're arguing, and, 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 and it starts to kind of escalate a little bit. And, and at one point, Sherry was, you know, um, her, her younger sister, Trisha, was getting on her nerves. She was kicking the back of her seat. 
And at one point, Sherry yells at her and says, stop it, this is annoying, I can't stand you. And by the way, you're never gonna play with me or my friends ever again, right, at this moment. And of course, dad is trying to like calm things down. I don't know, stay calm, stay calm, you know, it's okay. You know, let's work through it, but it keeps escalating. And then all of a sudden, dad yells out, watch out. And he turns the wheel, turns it back, right? Some car had cut them off. They're on the freeway. And all of a sudden, the car goes off the road, and this big suburban flips once and twice and three times. And all these kids and this dad, right, they, they, they collect themselves, and, and they sort of look around and go, is everything, how's everything, everything okay? And Sherry looks to the back seat where her younger brother and her younger sister had been sitting. They didn't have their seatbelts on, right, back in the 90s, right? Seatbelts were just like optional, seemed like. They used to even not have the seatbelt in the middle seat sometimes, crazy. But, but anyway, they didn't have their seatbelts on. They get thrown across the median, or one of them does. Sherry, Sherry's looking around. She locates her, her younger brother who seems to be okay, He's sitting up, seems to be breathing, everything looks okay. And she looks across into the median where her other sister had, I guess, been thrown. And she's laying there lifeless. And Sherry has these few seconds pass by that felt like minutes and even longer, not knowing in that moment. And to skip through all the details of the story, right, and all how that went down, miraculously everything turned out okay which is the good news. And I remember Sherry telling me the story, and she said, I walked right up to Trisha, of course, afterward, and I gave her this huge hug. And I said, I love you so much, and I am so, so sorry. I'm so, so sorry for what I said. And she said, and by the way, you will always, no matter how long time goes, you will always be able to play with me and my friends, no matter what. I reassure you, right? And, and Sherry told me the story, and she said, you know, it was a turning point in our family. It was a turning point really for the siblings because that moment happened. And you know, people say life is short. Well, this was our reality that life in a moment, right, in a flash could have been all gone. And thankfully, everyone survived it. Everyone made it out okay. And it was like this unspoken uh, sort of dynamic happened among the siblings and it happened and stayed true for years and years. That they would not speak cruelly and harshly and meanly they would not exclude the other. Yeah, like any siblings, they fought and argued over time about silly things. But there was years and years of a commitment that they wouldn't exchange words like that because they remembered this moment. And then it wasn't just about the words because I think as, as we get older in life, we start to learn, most of us, exteriorly, if that's a word, on the outside, externally, right, not to use words that, that we think we should, you know, or, or could use, and so we hold back, but we still have this perspective inside. And it's not just about the words, although it is about the words partly, it's also about the perspective. Because what Sherry said about that story is really the whole thing. It wasn't just about the exchange of words or, or, or not exchanging the wrong words. It was also about the perspective. Because every person, right, every person that we come in contact with in life, they're not an interruption. They are not an annoyance. They are people that are created by God. They're walking and breathing images of God with a measurable value. And we forget about that. And we lose perspective. But that is the posture of our hearts that God calls every one of us to. I love what C.S. Lewis said in his classic book, The Weight of Glory. He said this, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. 
or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. He contrasts. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal, he says. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. I love that. It gives us perspective, right? Perhaps you've had a moment or more than one moment where you have been the guilty one, where you've said the wrong words to someone so, so valued by God, an image bearer of God, and you've made that mistake, and I have, I know. You've said words that wounded someone, words you wish you could have, have, have back. And, and then you have the other side of it, where, where maybe it's happened to you and someone has said words I imagine most, if not all of us, have experienced this. Someone said words that hurt you, that wounded you, that you still remember and can run through even today in your head. This person, maybe they lost control. They let their temper or anger get the best of them. And you know what damage that can do in a relationship. I've done that. I've been guilty to the very people that, lo that I love the most. And, and one thing to say about that is, is that God's eyes tears up for, for those of us who have been hurt by words. We've been damaged. A relationship is dissolved. A, a sibling rivalry has gone awry. A, a parent-kid relationship is, is just, just not there anymore because words that were spoken and God's eyes tear up and his heart wells up with compassion and he wants to extend healing to you. And it's sometimes a journey of healing that, that God wants to be on with you. But he wants to meet you in that and go on that journey with you. And that's part of the process because we're imperfect, broken people in relationships with one another that sometimes hurt each other and sometimes is bad. And we're also people that can hurt others and wish, wish, wish we would have never said what we said. It also, all this reminds us once again that wise people use less words because they understand that they can't take their words back once they get out. The scriptures teach us to control our tongue. When we want to spout off so badly and it feels good sometimes to do that. I get that. But when we want to just like let them have it, right? The Bible tells us be slow to speak, be quicker to listen, be slower to become angry. And sometimes this means you have to surrender your right to have to be heard or to have the final word. I remember listening to a guy named Dallas Willard, who's one of the most admired spiritual people that I know, spiritually mature people, most God-honoring people. And he said this, he said, I've been practicing the discipline of not having to have the last word. And I loved when he said that. I'm like, oh man, I need that spiritual discipline in my life. Because sometimes I just want to have the last word. I just want to say it and be done with it. Sometimes even in my spirit, I want to walk away from it and just, uh, just let them have it, right? I feel that. and You probably feel that at times. And the scriptures guide us to say, no, be slow to speak. Stay calm and even tempered because it can do damage to relationships. And one arena when you think about words, of course, is the social media arena. This part of the message 
perhaps isn't for everybody, but, but for some of you, there are words that are flying out through your social media accounts that are dishonoring to God. There, there, there's a principle that you need to practice through those words and use less words. Perhaps for, for some in the room, you even need to fast it all together for a season so that God can grow you in this. And sometimes we have to surrender that need to be heard, that need to voice our opinion. Is there a time to be bold and to speak forth and to speak your opinion? Absolutely. But I think our challenge far greater is to use less words and not use the wrong words. Because to make comments about people, even people we don't know, whether it's a politician or a celebrity or someone just out there in the cyber world of sorts, right? that's still not okay to God. We, we talked about this last week, but, but Paul says, don't let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth or come through your text message or whatever words, however words you know, get displayed out there. He says, don't let, any unwor- don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful to build others up according to their needs. And if that doesn't motivate you, especially, I'll say, if you're younger, just remember your mom is on Facebook, you know, and that might be the only thing that motivates you. But we need to be careful with our words for a lot of reasons. And here's the thing about life in general. Generally speaking, we tend to earn more respect when we are slower to speak, when we use less words. And I think so many times we need to be reminded that we need to practice the discipline of being silent. We need to surrender the demand to be heard. And you know what? That's good for our soul. It's good for our soul, and God knows that. And the reason we so often want to be heard is ultimately, I believe, about our need for attention. And our need for attention is ultimately about our need for affection. So when we choose to be silent, we're saying to God, I'm going to trust you with my needs. And I'm not going to rely on someone else to meet that need. There's something quite spiritual about quietness and stillness and silence and there's this interconnection of, of being silent and quiet with people, but, but also being silent and quiet with God. In Psalm 46, verse 10, we read, Be still and know that I am God. Be still, be quiet before him, slow your soul down inside. Don't talk for a few moments so that you can know God and experience him and feel him and sense him. When we choose to quiet ourselves, we begin to open up the possibility and make ourselves available to the God who wants to speak to us, the God who wants to affirm us, the God who wants us to know him more deeply. When we choose to be quiet, We learn to engage a whole different dimension in life. We learn to engage with others in conversations in a whole different way. We learn to engage with God in that conversation in a whole different way. And then we're not walking around looking to meet all our own needs for attention and affection, which we all have those needs, but we're finding it in God. I mean, you read through the Gospels, You read about Jesus' life, and over and over and over, we we read these phrases that Jesus pulled away from the crowds. He withdrew to lonely places to pray, to ultimately be with his Father, to hear from his Father. And there's something about being quiet and listening 
that not only do we find a great challenge, but we far underestimate its importance. There's a power in silence, a transformational element that that we miss out on because we fail to see the greater importance and, and how that takes us deeper and forms us in the human journey. And I get it. It's hard. It's hard for me, too, to be quiet, to be still. But it's a necessary part of living both connected to people and connected to God. I mean, it's really a spiritual discipline if you, if you think about it. And it's one that forms you and shapes you. It, it's something we ought to practice so that, that God's grace and God's power can help us to, to, to engage with him and engage with others in whole different ways. And really the, the two disciplines I'm, I'm really talking about is, is the discipline of silence and the discipline of listening. I mean, James 1.19 again says, Be slow to speak, silence, and be quick to listen. To practice silence is one thing, but listening must follow. The discipline of silence is about what you do for yourself. It has everything to do with how God wants to shape you and form you and mold you and change you, who you're becoming, and your soul needs it. The discipline of listening is more about what you do for others. It helps you Focus on them. It helps you put value on them. It helps you to extend love ultimately in a very practical way. I love this quote from a guy named David Oxberg. He connects this idea of listening with practical ways that we love. And he says, being listened to is so close to being loved that most people can't tell the difference. Have you ever been around somebody like that? They just listen so well to you and you just feel loved and cared about. I have a lifelong mentor named Cheryl Flesher. And I remember back in the days when I was an intern and we used to uh, go about every other week, we, we would go to Chili's and we'd have lunch and, um, and, and she would ask me like one kind of general question to get the conversation going, you know, how you doing or, or, or what's God doing in your life or something like that. And then I would talk and I would talk and talk and talk and she'd listen She'd show up and be present. And then they'd have, there'd be that one moment and she just would ask that one question that just pierced me. And I'd just be like, man, that's such a good question. And she would take it to that deeper place. And it was like, man, you could tell she had heard like everything I had said. She wasn't doing what we sometimes do. We're like, yeah, yeah. Oh, your mom's sick. Oh, that's cool. Um, you know, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, you're going on vacation? Oh, man. Oh, um, oh, I'm going on vacation. You know, like that's kind of sometimes how we interact with people, right? We're distracted. I mean, she was the opposite of that. She was so present. And God used her in my life, one, to show me a deep kind of love, a, a transformational kind of love, a transformational kind of living, an uncommon way of engaging with people. And I don't get this right many, many times. But, but Cheryl has been the model, and I have you know, lifelong, ongoing contact with her in different ways as time has passed. But she's a model for me of someone who knows the importance of listening well and knows the importance of how practically loving that is. And I'm so grateful for her. My wife is so grateful for her because of the transformation that she's facilitated in my life through listening and asking questions. And I've strived over the years to become like that, to get better and better at that, to become a good listener, which I think for most of us is difficult to do. 
Part of it is our culture. Part of it might be our personality. There's lots of dynamics. But, but good listening requires that you show up and be present with people. Good listening requires that I make other people more important than myself, at least for a few moments. Philippians 2 verse 4 tells us this. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's simple to understand, very difficult to do. And as we learn to be quieter, as we learn to be quicker to listen, what also starts to form in us is empathy. Because we begin to enter into other people's story. We begin to see what they're going through, their struggles, their challenges, feel even what they're going through, perhaps even the pain of it, the struggle of it, the challenge of it. And God uses that to form something inside of us. You see, it's not just, you know, some of us that have empathy, some of us are bad at empathy. So, you know, and so like if I'm bad at empathy, I don't have to aspire to it. No, this is a, this is a character trait that's the expanding of your heart of love that God wants to do and form in all of you. And when you show up and you're present with people and you listen, that empathy begins to grow, no matter what your personality type. Because the truth of the matter is, if you don't show up and are present with people, if you're distracted, if you're always the one talking and never listening, it's hard to love one another well. And last I checked, the Bible calls every one of us who are followers of Jesus to love others well. And by the way, the world will know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. So I go, man, ought we to be more aspiring listeners if we want to love one another? And people can't tell the difference hardly of being listened to well or loved well. I mean, you look at the life of Jesus, and one of the things that strikes me, and I've done a study on this where you, you read through the Gospels, and you look at how Jesus asked questions and listened. It's crazy. He was quick to listen, slow to speak. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus asked at least 87 questions. He's the Son of God, by the way. In Luke's Gospel, he asked at least 129 questions. He's all-knowing, by the way. He's the one asking questions. In all four Gospels, when he gets asked a question 183 times, he responds, how do you think? With more questions, 307 questions to be exact. With very few, you can count them on one hand, what we would call direct answers. I mean, if anyone who's ever lived had something to say, I think it was Jesus. Yet he chose to ask questions. And what followed his question asking was engaged, present listening. And what people felt all around him that exuded from the way he related to them is love. Was there a time Jesus spoke up? Absolutely. But when you study the Gospels and you see what is unfolding in his life, listening and question asking and showing up for people, it's an uncommon path. It's true of Jesus, and he calls us to that same path, an uncommon path of listening. And here's the thing. When you look at the church, right, the church, not our church per se, but the church, right, the church is much more known to be quick to speak and slow to listen, aren't we? We're quick to throw at people what we think, what we believe, what we even think they should believe rather than hear them, listen to them. We're quick to give answers without ever listening to someone's questions. What if the church was committed? What if our church was committed to being present with people, 
to being quick to listen, to ask questions to people on their own journey. I mean, how would that affect the way the world on the outside that sometimes is so anti-Christianity and, and in some ways anti-church, I mean, how would they respond to that? Because best I can tell, man, when I feel listened to well, I feel loved. Don't we want to love the world around us? Again, there is a time to speak. There are things that we ought to say. But man, we do, we, I think our greater challenge is to listen well, to be quicker to listen. And then you think about this. What if when we prayed, we were slower to speak? We were quicker to listen. I mean, what if you asked God questions? He might ask you questions back. But what if you asked God questions and you carved out time and space in your life to listen? Sometimes we wonder why God is silent. It's not that God is silent. Is that we are not. In recent months, <clears throat> I've been practicing uh, a couple spiritual disciplines you could call silence and, <clears throat> and centering prayer. And to be quite honest with you, it, it's quite difficult, at least at times for me. I've tried to, in most mornings, wake up and have at least five minutes of just silence where I'm not talking, I'm just sitting there with God. I'll even say out loud sometimes, God, you are with me here now. And I'll sit there. <clears throat> and I'll try to quiet my mind and hear what God is saying. I'll try to turn my worries and fears and just the anxieties about my day over to him. And trust me, sometimes I'm so far distracted and far from that centered place. But it helps me. And I know in the better moments, I'm learning and I'm trying to declare, God, I trust you. I have all the stuff spinning in my head and in my heart and in my soul. And God, I'm going to say, I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to try and I'm going to listen to your quiet whispers. I mean, what if we took the words seriously, be still and know that I am God. And we sat with God. And we heard from God. And you know what would start to happen? We would start to sense his presence, not just in that moment, but all throughout our lives. And we'd start to hear him say things like, I am for you. I got your back. I love you. I delight in you. And the list goes on and on and on. Because God just doesn't want to tell us something to do. Sometimes he does. But he wants us to hear and know intimately that he is present with us, that he loves us, that he wants to be with us. And man, if we don't get silent, if we don't get still, if we don't stop talking both to others and to, and, and to God even, right, and, and quiet ourselves for a season, we are missing so much. And I'm the first to raise my hand in guilt. The Bible calls this wisdom, and it tells us this is an uncommon path to choose. And though it's simple in concept, use less words, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, it's difficult to live out. And if we choose, though, if we choose, though, this uncommon path, God, I assure you, will shape you, he will mold you, he will change you, he will free you. He will help you become the person he designed you to be because you'll give space for him to do his work in your life. And the scriptures challenge us over and over to remember that less is more. That less words is a holy and honorable pursuit and it's a necessary one for every follower of Jesus. 
It's a healthy practice for our souls. And God cares a lot. He cares a lot about your words, the words you say and the words you don't say. And God wants all of us to learn how to say less so that we honor him more. I'll um, close with this passage in the Gospels about Jesus because he's our model ultimately. The story of Jesus and how his life essentially ends as he became human and, and, and entered our world. Jesus has has been walked down the crucifixion path, right? They're, they're taking him to crucifixion. He's been spit upon. He's been mocked. He's been insulted. He's been whipped. A crown of thorns has been put on his head. He's been laughed at over and over and over. He's been through all this at that point. And we pick up in Luke. And then he's hanging on the cross. And it says the people stood watching. And the rulers, people in charge who could stop the whole thing, sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is God's Messiah, the chosen one, they're laughing at him basically, mocking him. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. So you have the rulers, now you have the soldiers. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there's a sign hanging above him. It says, this is the king of the Jews, right, making fun of him. One of the criminals even on his side who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Well, save yourself. And Jesus says nothing. And then in Matthew, <clears throat> there's others that hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple like you said, basically, and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come on down from the cross. And if you're the son of God, in the same way, the chief priests... <clears throat> The teachers of the law, the elders, they mocked him. All these different people. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we'll believe him then. And then this next verse says this. He trusts in God. He trusts in God. He was slow to speak. He was silent. He was He was. God over all the universe and could have in a word spoken and all of it gone away. Yet he chose this path for our sake. He didn't have to have the last word, at least what was perceived to be the last word. And what we ultimately see in that moment is that Jesus in his quietness and silence in his soul, as difficult as that must have been, had this deep residing trust in his father. This trust in his father's will. And here's the decision we all have to make. This decision, this set of choices, really, that we have to make, that we're going to decide, I'm going to use less words. I'm going to practice self-control. I'm going to surrender my own right to have the final word, to let him have it, as good as that feels sometimes. Because I'm going to trust the Father. I'm going to practice the discipline of silence in relationships with others and even with God. I'm going to practice the discipline of listening and showing up and being present. And I'm going to find God in the stillness. I'm going to slow down and stand in awe of him and learn to trust him and know him deeply. This is what God wants for you. He wants less words because he wants more of you and he wants you to have more of him i want you to 
just bow your head for just a moment. We've been talking this morning about silence, listening. I just want to practice that just for a few seconds. Being quiet can be a challenge, God, for all of us. I think a lot of us see it, though, that we see it, that we want to carve out space for you. God, I pray for us as a community that we would become better listeners of each other, of you, that we would learn how to be quiet. I pray you would let our words be few. Let our words that we speak be words of wisdom and God-honoring. Help us not to speak things we ought not speak. Can I ask everybody to stand for a moment before we play this song? There's really powerful words that I'm going to be in this next song that you can sing and reflect on. And one of them is, God, let my words be few. It goes on to say, I stand in awe of you. And as this song plays, I want you to sit in that, that we're standing in awe of God. I think we ought to do that more. I think I ought to do that more. How about you? So let's play this song. Listen to it, sing it, and ultimately worship God in this moment.